welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 360 and my conversation with the director of pop music studies, as well as being the music, media, entertainment technology chair for the Huntington Beach High School Academy for the Performing Arts in California, percussionist, educator, and current board president and one of the founders of Pulse Percussion, Danielle Collins. Let's get right to it. I always ask my guests, after having them on, to suggest future guests for me, and this time was no different. Danielle and I were introduced through recent podcast guest, Amanda Duncan, and Danielle immediately agreed to do the show. So here we are. Danielle's been involved in the education and performance fields for a long time. As you'll hear, she was trained in classical percussion and taught band and orchestra at the high school level before making the career change to what she's doing now. She's been involved in the WGI circuit for a long time, staying based in Southern California while doing so, and she's passionate about pop music education, and you'll hear why. She's also well-trained in doing media, to the point that several times she self-edited and restarted, and I didn't even have to ask her to do so. Made the final editing process for this episode so much easier. Thanks again, Danielle. We get to all of that, plus a lot about her interests in sports, movies, TV shows, great books, and great art. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 8th, 2023, and it begins right now. So Danielle, give me a summation of your job responsibilities and if if percussion and responsibilities at all are included, then talk about those too. My full-time pay job is um, a music director at a high school. I am the director of the Music, Media, Entertainment Technology Department at Huntington Beach High School at the Academy for the Performing Arts. So essentially, um, I oversee the pop music program. Um, we also have a media department with our program and uh, we collaborate on projects. So uh, the students will perform three big productions a year with that media team, filming, running live shots, photography, and then recording and editing in post as well. Um, our performers, our pop musicians also have about 80 to 100 gigs in the community a year that they that they participate in. And so we'll send students out um, throughout the year to perform at, you know, the International Surf Open and, you know, a senior center gig and a city fair and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I oversee that with a, a team of faculty and instructors. When you say that these are projects, are they that the ones that they have to film, that, that means that they're, are they also live as well or could they be, or are they mostly about post-production and a, like a finished product that, that is edited and figured out? We put on three giant rock shows a year. Okay. And in a big auditorium, we have a hundred year old auditorium on our campus and we'll perform in that with, you know, a thousand people in the audience and we will uh, perform somewhere between two and four times per show run. Uh, we have that double casted. We'll have two, two different casts, matinee cast and evening cast for each of the shows. 
so we'll do the whole show live. We'll also record it, um, kind of make a DVD version. One of those shows is predominantly original music. So our media team will make music videos for those original songs. And then we will use technology to project those in the back while the students are performing the song live. So it's pretty fun. That's, that's kind of my day job. That's, that's the fun day job gig. I have, I work with um, a couple other organizations on the side. Um, but that's, that's the fun one. And, you know, I do teach drums, um, with the group it's, it's keyboards, guitars, vocals, bass, drums, percussion, depending on the show. Sometimes we have extra stuff like, um, this past show we did funk and soul we needed a lot of horn players. So we had, we had some ringers come in. We had some students at the high school play with us. Typically I would be helping coordinate that music, checking keys, checking scores for accuracy, that kind of stuff. Um, and then working with the whole group, not just the drummers um, to make sure that the production is as close to original song as possible. As a follow-up on the, for these original shows and for the original music, is part of what they get taught about publishing rights and songwriting and, and that kind of stuff? Yes. Um, one of the classes that I teach is called songwriting and recording. We try to allow students to choose their personal pathways in the program. So we kind of try to treat it like a, an industry driven place, almost like they're all in an internship preparing for the next job. So we have students who are focusing on songwriting. Um, I have collaborators who are doing more recording at home. Like a lot of my drummers tend to not be songwriters. They tend to collaborate and record for those songwriters. I have audio engineer students. Um, I have students who are more event production and event coordinating and event management focused. Um, and so we kind of just try to direct and help lead them um, down those paths as they find them. Um, and we try to expose the students to everything um, that we can while while they're there and until we sort of see what niche they want to do. And some students just want to come and perform. And that's okay, too, you know, and just excel at performance in that style. Tell me about getting that job and what led to you either establishing or taking over a program such as you are in right now. So I was in college and grad school studying music education and my director was being influenced by pop music education at the time. Um, and I came from a very um, marching arts background. Um, I did that in high school. I marched drum corps. I am still affiliated with a WGI group uh, that's indoor percussion group. So my background was, was a little bit more um, traditional and um, I wasn't quite interested in working with pop musicians because it was a, an unknown territory for me. You know, I, I had never been in a rock group. I had never been uh, given the opportunity. I had never sought out the opportunity um, to play pop music, just didn't ever line up. And even in high school with jazz band, there was always somebody else playing drums. So I kind of pushed away from that for a long time um, and eventually tried it at my high school and found that it was very, very successful and that there were totally different students coming in the door. I was reaching and seeing 
a different kid than that kid that wanted to come in and play clarinet or oboe or trombone even. Um, and realized that if I could create a space for these students, it would expand my program. So I did after about a year and a half, I had like seven bands worth of students, which is quite a few, you know, we're talking like 50, about half the size of my marching program. So it got big very, very quickly. I kind of did what any other music educator would do and and made it work with what I had when I had it. There were kids coming in that were new kids coming in. I'm going to welcome them one way or another. Uh, So I started uh, seeking out training and I went to some conferences and uh, I met a guy named Jamie Knight super cool bass player who was teaching at Huntington Beach High School at the time. And he and his friends and his wife built this program, this huge, incredible pop music program from the ground. You know, he was a librarian at Fountain Valley High School and he was a rock musician and he he saw it. He knew that schools needed to offer this to reach more kids and different kinds of kids and it would keep them you know, clean and in school. And we got to give these kids an outlet that, you know, they're not welcome to play clarinet. They don't want to, they don't want to be in choir. They want to sing rock. They want to sing punk, you know, different stuff like that. So he, he figured it out in the early two thousands, got his team together and built a program. And he and I met at a conference and a couple years later, he reached out to me and said, I'm retiring, come interview for my job. Um, and so there's already, um, a traditional music program on my campus. There is a musical theater program on my campus. There's a dance program. We have a huge arts program. It's pretty incredible. We see about a thousand artists. How big is the school student? The school is, so the school is 3000 students. Um, and we, for the, for four classes for four grades. Yeah. The school is 3000 students for four grade levels. And we can also pull from any of the high schools that are in our district. We will see anyone from one of the six high schools. They'll come and audition and be placed in uh, the program that best fits where they're at to kind of make sure that, you know, they're prepared and going to be confident on what they're doing and feel good about it. And it's going to be a good fit for them. And so we'll place them in, in different, uh, different departments or different areas or aspects of each department um, when they come in and audition. And that means that we can, ha- you know, we have access to like 8,000 kids that could audition. We get about uh, 80 to 100 students a year who audition for our program, the pop music program. And we take about 25 to 35 students. So yeah. And when I tell music educators, I turn down 60 kids a year. They just look at me like, what do you, what, what do you mean you turn down 60 kids? And I say, I don't have the time or the room. I would love to take everybody. We just don't have the facilities for it. So it gets real when music educators are looking for students. They're trying to grow their program and recruit and build. And I tell them, yeah, I cut 40 last week. Right. And they're like, what do you mean? So that's kind of how I got into it. But one of the one of the other reasons that um, I think I was capable of doing the job was my work with pulse percussion. I do want to share a little bit about that. Um, We can talk about it now or we can talk about it later. Go go, go ahead now. It's fine. I think I was most prepared for or capable of 
working at Huntington because of my work with pulse percussion. Um, and I've been working with pulse percussion since 2004 um, as a member. And then in 2008, I was on staff and I've been working with pulse since 2008 in some facet. Um, and in my time with them, um, part of what I do for pulse percussion now is to uh, manage the vendor relationships and the industry relationships and make sure that our partners are feeling uh, supported and also that we are honoring uh, their support to us in the best way we can. Um, and so because of that, um, I think Huntington really liked the idea of having someone around that could um, leverage some of those relationships and help best market Huntington and show what we're doing, what we're doing so well in the other departments um, at the, at the performing arts program. At Huntington, what is the dedicated space for all of this to happen? So right now we have two working studios, one that is truly an actual recording studio and one that is a carpeted classroom, formerly a computer lab that's been gutted and um, and rebuilt to to work as a studio, a rehearsal studio. And then we also have a computer lab with 37 um, MacBook or Macs, iMacs with Logic Pro. Um, we're we are an Apple distinguished program, and so everything we do is is Apple based. We use GarageBand. We teach the kids on Logic Pro. All of our production classes happen through those software programs. And then we also have three isolation rooms for control, uh, control audio. So we have like a recording studio with our mixer and our mains in it, um, our monitors. And then we also have um, a repair shop and an ISO booth for recording vocals if we need to. Um, and then a couple different little storage zones for our tour gear um, and our media gear. We house like a CL3, a Yamaha CL3 mixer in our main studio. Um, and we use uh, an Allen and Heath uh, in our uh, SQ5 in our other studio. Yeah, so our students learn on Final Cut. But we also have students who come in with laptops and do a lot of their work in post-production at home. And so we're, we're pretty flexible. You know, as long as they're getting work done and it's in a way that we can help them, that's fine. Um, our media students are, are very, very versatile um, there's a broadcast journalism class on campus and the students um, put out a weekly uh, campus update show where they interview or they're talking about current events or something like that. And so that's filmed, you know, on Wednesday mornings during fourth period kind of thing. Um, so it's a very, very active space. We're always, you know, adjusting and changing and moving around our studio because we have to use it for so many different things. We have a green screen curtain in there. We have a black curtain. We have a full light rig so that we can have sort of a constellation room show if we need to in there. Um, you know, that helps us emulate major productions too, so that the kids are used to using lights before they get into um, the main stage performances. Uh, the other rooms like way more scaled down. There's fluorescence, there's like LED strips. Um, there is a drum booth in there, which is great. Like we have drum booths, isolated drum booths in both of our studios, which is awesome. Um, but it's, it's pretty scaled down in there. Um, you know, we use wireless guitar units. We use wireless um, ears, uh, monitors for our students. It, it helps them get ready for the shows because that's the technology we use for our shows. Um, and 
we do a lot of recording and rehearsal. You know, we will we will track what they're doing so they can hear it. We'll just play it back and the staff doesn't really have to talk. We can just let them hear themselves and they can talk about it as a band. Is there a requirement for learning or being able to read music? No, not until they need it. Um, I have a handful of students who are pursuing or who pursue uh college music programs each year. And at that point, when they come to me and say, this is where I want to go, I say, okay, great. Let's give you the training. Let's, let's create the reasons for you to learn how to write and read. Um, I'm going to throw you, you know, 20 charts and you need to be able to plan by Wednesday, you know, and then they go, oh, okay, that's why we read. So um, I, I try really hard to make sure that what we do is catered to the students we have. And so when there's a student who has a need or wants to arrange for horns or strings or, um, you know, wants to get into a college program and have that sight reading section, um, you know, be successful in that audition, then we'll build that. Um, but we don't ask students to be able to read. However, I would say 95% of our students have studied privately for two to five years um, and so they're all very familiar and comfortable with chord theory. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk, you know, E dominant seven in rehearsal and, you know, 80% of the students in the room will know what that means. Um, and we'll, you know, encourage our, our students who don't know what that means, usually our vocalists, to jump on another instrument and take on second and third instruments while they're in the program to help expand that understanding. But um, in terms of standard notation, I really feel like the more languages of music they speak, the more people they can talk to. So if they get into a studio and they're reading lead sheets, that's a job. Now they can get a job doing that. If they know jazz standards, that's a job. Now they can get a job doing that. If they can sight read notation, great. Now you have one more group of people in the industry that you can speak with and be hired by. So We'll get there when we need it, um, but the students absolutely um, build their own chord charts at the beginning of every show run. That's part of the learning process. Um, the evening cast will do it, the upperclassmen, and then the matinee cast will do it separately, and we'll sort of swap them and have the groups check each other and make sure the chord charts are correct. Um, and sometimes that's very simple, like when we do our contemporary show that we're doing in uh, late October, it's the Billboard Top 100 for the last two years. Mm. Those songs tend to be pretty easy to hear and and transcribe. Um, when we did a Beach Boys show last year, <laughs> transcribe. You might think stuff. that's easy, and it's not. Right. It was like the hardest show we've ever done. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it it just depends, and there's a lot of research that goes into it, both for the students and the staff. Um, I do a lot of what I would call score analysis um, orally. Mm -hmm. to to try to be prepared for rehearsal and catch everything that uh, a conductor would as they're looking at a score. Um, and we ask the students to do the same. So there is a bit of research and um, literacy, academic or musical literacy that is required, but not necessarily in standard standard notation. I like the way that you phrase it as being able to, to speak to more populations, essentially, by getting these tools and not foisting it on them as like a, a, some, a barrier. Yeah. And, and I think that if I put that in their face, I would get 
pushback from them. Um, I think that and strongly believe that the, the type of student that's walking in the door to be part of this program is significantly a different person than that who would walk into a traditional band program. They're both probably looking for community, but, um, and, and a sense of, a sense of belonging and a sense of self. Um, but I think the avenue to which they receive it has to be different. And I think that standard notation, while it can be helpful, as you said, it, it's a barrier for kids. It's just one more barrier we're putting up for kids to not be able to access music. So we're going to tell them what they don't know, you know, so we'll do it gradually. I'll use words and, th- and, and terms and, you know, when they're comfortable enough to uh, receive it. But, um, you know, we have, we have pulled standard notation out one time and that was for good vibrations. Mm. Um, we had, we had the charts for good vibrations. I won't say how we had them, uh, but we did have them. <laughs> Uh-huh. And um, you know the students read along with it, and it really helped them get get you know receive a visual depiction of the audio that they weren't used to seeing. Um, but asking them to 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 have that level of visual nuance that matches what they have of an aural nuance um, is is that next level of of musicianship. Now, when I worked with um, my traditional students at my old high school, and I would ask them, hey where's the verse? Where's the intro? Where's the chorus? Their brains just spun around and spun around because that was a language that we weren't speaking. Um, And so they weren't quite ready for that language and didn't think about music that way. They were still stuck reading those notes on the page. So it literally is a different diction, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that they're, that they're speaking or using a different dialect. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and again, that's the, that's the way that has to be framed. I think is, is it's a different language. More importantly, you're not putting validity on, you're not uh, ascribing validity to one language and not another, which frequently happens in those spaces. And it's a challenge for me because I work with a handful of staff and faculty members who were trained in the Huntington model. Mm. And I come in and I'm the kid who was trained classically. And so, and I I told them that I said, you know, we can talk, you want to talk music history from, you know, 1850 to 1920, let's go. You know, I was dry paid, you know, 60 grand to, to be able to recite and sing everything that was written between those years. But if you want to talk to me about 1968, it's going to be hard for me to pull that out. And those guys all have that in their back pocket. They can describe it in a hundred ways, you know? And so there's, we speak a different language as a staff as well because of that. Um, And it's been this new dialect for me to try to know how to listen and hear the music in the way a pop musician does. And also talk to pop musicians in the way they need to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You, what you made me think to ask is what is the impact of the programs like GarageBand and Logic in terms of the visual aspect of music? How does that factor in? Because that's also a change in terms of we're, that is a much more visual medium that is now very accessible to anyone who is recording music. I think it is a as you said, it's a, it's a wide open door 
for kids who aren't quite comfy putting quarter notes on a page. Uh, we teach a music production class of 40 students and they all, they're all on computers and they're writing, they're composing, they're arranging, they're creating, but we'll also put an instrument in their hand and we'll say, okay, it's your turn to go over to the studio, you five, go pick a song and learn it or go write a song and come back after you've rehearsed it and record all the parts. Um, and I think it's empowering for those kiddos who love music. They listen to music and they aren't asked to put that away. They're not being asked to say, okay, yeah, you're a musician. You like music. You listen to it. That's great. But let's talk about John Philip Sousa, you know, and that's not to be insulting to anyone who's teaching John Philip Sousa. That's really, really, really important. But this is just an and. This is just an also. This is important, but also, you know, I think David Bowie's important. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so it sort of, yeah, and (laughs) and, you know, it's important. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, and validating and valuing what they're doing, I think, empowers them and gives them some ownership. So, those kids that come into music production, most of them have never tried to the verb music on in a recording scape you know in a recording landscape they've they've played or they've you know sung in the shower or just listened to music and and so giving them tools like that garage band logic here drag this loop put it in now record a drum track to it you know it's it's a stepping stone and it's access and you know it's funny when i talk to my my friends who are film composers that's what they do first you know they build this audio image of a track and then they give it to either the lead composer or the director and the director goes yeah get that on paper for the musicians to read but everything is built in a soundscape environment that these students are receiving first and they don't have the variable of having to learn an instrument necessarily that instrument is much more accessible it's like almost like giving a recorder to a 15 year old Um, You know, it's much easier and quicker for them to get, but they can also create sounds that they really like and they're used to hearing in the wild right away. Well, let's transition. Tell me more about pulse percussion, uh, your involvement with it. You kind of you alluded to it a little bit, but um, more about the beginnings, what what the group does, et cetera. Pulse percussion was actually on America's Got Talent in early August, on August 1st. At times, we tend to be an entertainment core um, and an entertainment group. And so we have a lot of fun doing that and doing, you know, football games and basketball games and things like that, too. Um, predominantly, Pulse is dedicated to indoor competitive drumline, um, much like what you would see in a high school program. Um, it is an overgrown high school program. <laughs> it reaches college students. Um, and students who are post high school and still wanting to pursue music. Um, some of our students, most of our students uh, perform in drum and bugle cores in the summertime. And so the indoor percussion activity sort of provides them an opportunity to hone those skills and do something from September to April in the off season of uh, summer summer band is what we call it. Pulse has been around since uh, 2005. Their first competitive season was in 2005. We took off COVID year 2020 and then 21 as well for COVID and have been competitive since. 
Pulse has won the world championship five times and been medalist or top five in the highest division of competition almost every year that we've been in existence. And it's been a blast. Um, it's been really, really fun to work with the creative team uh, and the directors and the administrators and the whole crew, the board members. Um, everyone is basically volunteering. Uh, and, you know, it's it's fun. It's really hard. <laughs> But it's a ton of fun to see the members come together and put on these huge productions um, and work on those productions and, and build some community and, and hone their skills. Um, so right now I'm the board president of Pulse um, and I have been for a few years. Um, previously, I was the executive director of Pulse and uh, we also uh, have a second group called POW Percussion um, and that was intended to be a feeder program, but is now another competitive group in the same division as Pulse. So I've, I've oversaw those as an executive director. Before that, I was a director and an instructor. As I said, right now I'm board president of Pulse, but that can mean kind of anything. It really just means that whatever Pulse needs to get done, I can help do if it's in my ability. One of our bigger fundraisers is merchandise and uh, what we promote, how we promote Pulse to our community. For the last 10 years or so, I've, oversee I've overseen that. I also manage the vendor relationships, like I said, and the negotiations, trying to get Pulse um, what they need to be successful, um, try to bring in and leverage new relationships to help Pulse. Um, I help oversee the admin team. Um, we have a phenomenal ad administration team of, of directors uh, that are the boots on the ground, making sure that Pulse has everything that they need and POW, have everything that they need to rehearse, perform, compete, travel, um, eat, sleep, all of that uh, while they're on tour. So I help that team um, and try to problem solve as best I can um, with that team. You know, we oversee all the equipment and make sure that the equipment is, is in working condition. Um, and if it's not, troubleshoot how to repair it or um, get it repaired, that kind of thing. And that involves those relationships as well. There's a social media aspect to this. Um, we have about 30, 40,000 followers on Instagram. Um, we're expanding our Twitter and our Twitch. Um, and we have a YouTube channel. And so helping oversee that, making sure that the messaging is appropriate and correct, making sure that the timing of that is, is appropriate. You know, before this call, I was messaging the colleagues, reminding about auditions and clinic announcements. Hey, we got to make sure this is coming out. You know, they're coming up. So um, just ensuring that our team is all healthy and happy and working with those volunteers to make sure that their experience is awesome. And if I could do it full time, I probably would because <laughs> uh, I love it. And, um, you know, this, this organization was kind of built in part for me to participate in. And so when I, when I got too old to perform, I felt like I wanted to stay and help. Couple, <laughs> let me, so a couple things. So I, that I want to ask, um, and if we get to the, the, what you were planning to, we, we will, but what I, what I want to ask is one is where, where does pulse and pow practice? Where is their like home base? And then the other thing, which is not related, but it is something I want to make sure I hear about is what are the ways that you, solidify as you said the relationships that you're that you work with your companies to maintain 
Got it. So Pulse and Pow both rehearse in Garden Grove, California. Um, it's kind of a suburb of Huntington Beach or Long Beach or Orange County. We try to do our, our darndest to help support those music programs in that district because they're helping us so much. Um, one of our groups rehearses at one high school and one rehearses at the other. And it means that if our staffs need to transition from one group to the other on a single evening, they can do that. Um, you know, Pulse and Pow have rehearsed 40 miles apart in certain years. Um, and so it's a huge, huge benefit um, Garden Grove Unified does not know how special they are to us, um, doing what they're doing and making it feasible for Pulse to even exist, um, to have the facility. And so we're, we're rehearsing on those high school campuses and, um, they rehearse on, uh, Sundays until December, and then they will go all weekend, every weekend from December through their competitive season that ends in mid April. I mean, how do I, uh, develop or continue to leverage those relationships, um, with our, with our partners. And I think it's, you know, it's about, um, knowing what our partners want, uh, and how we can help them. You know, we have some relationships that, um, you know, we've had for a really, really long time and they don't ask much of us. They just want us to use the gear, love the gear, spread the word. Um, and we've got other relationships that are new that, are, you know, budding and growing companies um, that are phenomenal companies that they want us to track how many people are using their products in our Pulse atmosphere. And they want us to provide data of, you know, the community and what products are being used and basically help them, you know, with, with data analysis. Some of our partners want increased marketing opportunities on our platforms, on our social media platforms and um, different platforms that we provide, you know, put their logo on a clinic t-shirt. And so every kid that has a t-shirt goes home with that logo on it. Um, and so it's, I think it's just about knowing and understanding, developing those relationships with those partners to realize how we can help them. Um, and in turn, they can help us do what we do. Kind of a bat more background question about Pulse in the area, because I do not I'm not in the WGI world, nor am I Good for familiar you. with what's <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> nor am I all that versed in, in what WGI means to the West coast. So prior to pulse being started, what was the status of the WGI on the West coast? Was it fitting into an environment that existed or was it something that has now grown from that time period. <laughs> okay, let me think about this. Okay. So Pulse came out in 2005. Prior to that, there were, I believe, two competitive groups um, that were had just developed um, in the area. One from Burbank, California, and one from Riverside. One was affiliated with a school. One was independent, like a, a community college. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the other was independent. At the time, in the in that you know early two thousands, twenty years ago, um, the activity was still kind of finding its feet in Southern California. Um, there were a couple very very successful high school programs um, in the area that would go out and travel to world championships on the other side of the country and be very very successful. 
And those designers and educators began tinkering with working with college students and, okay, can we take this high school thing to the independent thing? And they were very successful. When Pulse started, it was a solution to a problem at the time that was um, schedule. So one of the groups that was from Southern California with the community college was rehearsing in the middle of the week. And so it made it very difficult for anyone that was going to a four-year university to stop everything and drive to Riverside and participate in that. It, it, you know, it was, it was impossible. I was going to a four-year college. Uh, my colleagues were as well. And we were like, we can't leave at 1 p.m. on a Wednesday and a Thursday and not take classes the rest of the day. How do we do this? And the other group, the other group was from Burbank and they were, they were another opportunity, but uh, it didn't seem like it was something that we wanted to continue with. And so we, we wanted a different kind of opportunity. And if I can be really, really, brutally honest, um, you know, that group from Burbank came to us and said, hey, we know you paid all your tuition, but things cost more. We need more money in the middle of the year. And, you know, some people haven't paid, so we need you to pay for them. And we kind of, you know, in my heart of hearts, I went, this, this doesn't seem like it's supposed to be the way it is. Um, The designers and the educators were fabulous and they weren't getting paid and they were told they were going to get paid. Um, And so they weren't happy. We knew they weren't coming back. And, and so we went to our high school educators and those who were doing great at the competitive high school level and said, we need a group. (laughs) Can, can you guys like start a group? So we have somewhere to go because we don't want to go over here. This didn't work out and we can't do that other option. Um, And so Pulse started, um, out of another organization, um, a, an umbrella organization. And that's why we called it Pulse. We did that under that umbrella organization for a few years, and it mostly worked. And our our you know predecessors, the guys who started Pulse, are now you know overseeing all of indoor percussion in the country. You know, it's it, the phenomenal, amazing, amazing humans that were putting all of their energy into this group you know, kind of banging their heads against the wall because of some back-end stuff that none of us performers or staff members really knew about. Um, and so after a few years, those those three strong individuals said, we can't do this anymore in the terms that it is. We got to walk. Our banquet, what was supposed to be a banquet, became like a sob story of this is the end of Pulse. And that was in 2007. So we did 2005, 2006, and in 2007, when all of us basically got too old to do it, um, the group that they, you know, kind of brought in initially, when those guys eventually left in 2007, we said, well, this can't be the end of Pulse. Like, there's got to be, you know, this problem is still a problem. Um, and and Pulse can still be the solution. So we stayed and worked with the Umbrella organization uh, for two years and it was incredibly difficult. Um, that organization would cancel rehearsals the day of for their mm. rehearsals for their drum corps. Uh, and we were sharing equipment at the time. And so now we just can't rehearse. And, you know, moved us and, you know, asked for a certain amount of money to go towards their finances and then decided later, mm, we need more, but didn't really communicate that to us. So our budget was a mess because of that. And um, then we called... Uh, some individuals who are designing for us now who are phenomenal guys and said, you know, can you come design for us? Because none of us are designers. We are barely doing this 
functionally. We're just trying to make it work. And so they came in and they said, okay, we'll write. And they wrote and there was success immediately. And those, those two individuals found, um, that they could make this something. They could bring in their crew of educators and help oversee this and really make this something great. So that was in 2009. And in 2010, Pulse won the world championship. So it was a very, it was overnight that we realized working with this other umbrella organization is not gonna work. And myself and the designers and a couple other individuals met with my family's lawyer we realized that there were no name rights that were acquired. So we went ahead and got those, incorporated, submitted all of the organization paperwork and became an organization just before auditions when the Umbrella organization previously called us and said, by the way, we're going to cancel your auditions this weekend. We're going to fold the group. And I got to tell them, well, I'm really sorry. You actually don't have the rights to the group anymore. We're going to keep going, but we're going to be on our own now. So that was 2009-10 season. And that was the year that Pulse, that was the first year that Pulse won. Um, so it was a, it was a Cinderella year for us. It was a ton of work and a ton of fun. I would never do that year again. Um, but it really rooted Pulse into Southern California. And I think that just added educators, like those members you know, got too old and moved on to teach groups. And so now we have, you know, three, four, five college age programs in Southern California that those students have sort of graduated from and are now teaching other groups. And I think that, you know, just expanding has kind of ballooned uh, indoor percussion in Southern California. So, yeah, we what, filed as a 501c3. I took out an $80,000 loan. We bought the gear. It was really fun. <laughs> it was really fun and really scary. And in five years, we paid it off and went, okay, everything's okay. Let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who are the other, you don't have to mention, I'm not interested by name, but like wh where the other board members come from? Uh, the other individuals who met with us in 2009. Is that who you mean? Right, that are part of the board because- you're 501c3 after. Well, right now, we we obviously have a much different board now than we sure. did in 2009. Those individuals, John Mapes, Ian Grom, and a couple others that met kind of were our core group and said, let's get this off the ground. Let's go. And John and Ian, John really um, has been the driving force of Pulse. He's the creative director. Um, you know, he is he is the reason that 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 Pulse is still afloat and and how successful they are. Um, is really him, you know, and, and Ian as well. Ian is just, Ian has written and, and sacrificed so much and has done some amazing things in the activity to um, innovate composition. Um, so, you know, those two guys were at the forefront. Now we don't ask them to be on the board because they're our creative team. Right. Um, you know, our current board members um, are educators, uh, across the world, across the country. Um, and we also have, you know, individuals who work in, um, uh, supply chain management, um, you know, marketing, education, college education, um, and accounting. Super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> but they're awesome great. humans, you know, like everybody, um, everybody kind of comes together and says, okay, how do we make this better and bigger, you know, yeah. and easier for the kids? Cause the kids are, you know, having to, 
to pay a tuition to partake, you yeah. know, and to participate. And so the the goal is always how do we pay our staff more and get our students to pay less. All right. Well, let's back up, Danielle. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Rancho Cucamonga. I hated it. But for all those who are from Rancho, it's a great place to live. It's a great place to grow up. It was not for me. Uh, I went to Rancho Cucamonga High School. I had a phenomenal experience at the high school music program there. Um, really, really, really lucky to to be under some incredible educators while I was in high school there. And immediately I said, I want to do this. I want to teach high school music right when I got there. Um, my high school director now teaches at Upland High School, and he's been doing amazing things there for the past like 20 years. Awesome. Did you have family members in the arts? No, none. I have no family members in the arts. My dad was a motocross racer. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> yeah, and a roofer. And um, my mom is in administration, actually. Mm. <laughs> uh, my mom is in um, property management and administration. And um, she's doing, you know, she's done commercial and residential real estate her whole life. Yeah, I, I know as a kid, I always heard, you know, bylaws and board and, you know, like policy. And that was like barked at me all the time. You know, I remember being a kid and like sitting in the corner of a room while my mom had a board meeting. Um, and and so I, I think that kind of stuck with me. Um, and it's been great to have my mom uh, have that background because I can go to her with problems and you know, hey, I've got this thing, I've got this situation. And she goes, well, why don't you do this and this? And I, of course, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, so it's, it's great to have my mom with that experience. Um, my grandmother was a, a cook. She was a teacher. So I do have that going for me. Um, and I love to cook. You know, my, my family taught me how to cook. And so that's a thing I do that I've definitely pulled from them. Um, my grandpa owned a motorcycle dealership. <laughs> so no arts in, on either side that I know of. That's, that's wild. Do, do you, can you ride a motorcycle? Probably. I'm, I'm, <laughs> probably. I'm rarely allowed to do that by myself. I allowed, I guess I shouldn't say that. Um, I, I rarely choose to, yeah, sure. um, I, I think I, I think I, I paddleboard instead. I get on okay. the water and, and go a little slower than that. But I, yeah, I think my four-year-old would love to, if I let him. Fair enough. When did the percussion bug hit you then? Oh, that's a great question because it's Pete's Percussion Podcast. I think the percussion bug hit me in elementary school. Um, we were offered to participate in band. Um, and actually, at first, we weren't. We were fourth graders and we weren't allowed to. And so, you know, of course, what did I do as a, you know, nine-year-old? I started a petition so that we could participate in band as fourth graders. Yeah, I got a petition going with 30 of my friends that signed it. And I went to the band director and said, you should let us be in band. And he said, okay, do you want to play trumpet or drums? And I told my mom and she said, well, you can carry drumsticks to school every day or you can carry a trumpet case. What do you want to do? And I said, well, obviously it's drumsticks. That's how I got started. I had a, an incredible uh, junior high director he he was at that school for like 40 years, 
Tom Nalbach. And a lot of students went through him and pursued music education and performance. Um, he just, he had an incredible, incredible career at that junior high. Um, and we had a blast. He made it a great experience. We were good. We played, you know, so many of my now friends are still from that program and still are musicking in some way. Um, and so, you know, I went to high school and wanted to continue that and had the opportunity to audition for the drumline and it was great and it was fun. And I was terrible, kind of tried to stay alive in that group. Um, that was a, also a very competitive group. We would go out to world championships and, you know, compete in the, in one of the lower divisions and, and do pretty well. And so, you know, I fought pretty hard, but we just had some amazing educators and amazing, I had amazing peers. A lot of the peers that I worked with um, or that I performed with in high school are still teaching percussion. Um, in fact, we just hired one back who's doing phenomenal things um, in drum corps and indoor percussion elsewhere. We brought him into our family after he left for a while. Now we got, we have him back. So um, that's, you know, that's a guy I played in high school with. So uh, yeah, I, I had a great, great career, um, young career in, in percussion. And, um, I went to Cal State Fullerton and I had some of the best percussionists in Southern California playing marimba four feet away from me as I watched them. And I was absolutely floored. And these people are now educators. Um, you know, one of them is working for the symphony in, um, Florida now and, you know, it was amazing. I could just sit and eat my lunch and watch these guys rip on marimba. That just perpetuated the bug for me. Yeah. What when you are going through junior high, high school, is it uh is it a, a classically based or are you playing a lot of drum set as well? What's kind of the focus? Definitely classically based. It was all ensembles. Um, I never really had the opportunity to play drum set. Um, there was one jazz band one year when I was in high school and I was not the best drummer in the program. So I didn't, I didn't get that seat. Um, I was always playing other stuff, timpani, um, all the auxiliary percussion is really what I ended up getting, uh, handed. And so that kind of in junior high and high school, that's really what I ended up doing the most when I wasn't in a marching percussion setting. Aside from all the music activities, were you involved in anything else? Did you play sports? Did you do any student government, uh, mathletes, uh, right. related, anything like right. that? Right. Um, I gave up a lot to be in music. I was playing ice hockey. I was playing Ooh. baseball, like boys baseball. Um, I was like, you know, the only girl in the ice hockey league and the only girl in the baseball team, and you know, that kind of thing. Um, I was playing in, uh, roller hockey for a while, gave that up. I was in karate for a while, gave that up. Um, so I kind of quit all that stuff when I went to high school to try to do that. Took some honors classes, dove in and dedicated everything to music, really. Um, I, you know, I was a mentor for, uh, other students, um, for reading and different things like that in junior high, but, um, really, really kind of knew immediately that I wanted to go deep, hard on music path and just stay that course. How do you get connected to Cal State Fullerton? I had an, a director um, who actually has been the, the director of the University of Louisville marching band. Um, oh. she, was, she was my high school director for one year when I was a senior, and she was really connected, I think, uh, networked with the main uh, music director there. Um, and so she said, you got to go to Fullerton, you got to go to Fullerton. And so... Without really any research, uh, which was a terrible idea, 
Um, I just applied and got in. And I didn't apply to any other schools. I didn't look at any other schools. I should have. Um, I just, I didn't know how to college. My mom went to community college. And so she didn't have that experience and know, you know, what to do with me next. I went to a school with like 2000 students. So there wasn't really that much support Mm -hmm. for me for that yet. Okay. I'll go to Fullerton. That sounds good. I have a couple other friends applying there. Great. I got in and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was just not for me. There were so many musicians there that were exhilaratedly happy. Like there were so many musicians there who were so happy um, with what they offered and what they were doing at Fullerton. And that was just not me, you know, and most of it was that I wanted to study other music beyond what I had already studied in high school. And it wasn't offered or available to me unless I already knew how to kind of do it. And then I could sort of pursue that. I had a colleague um, who was doing Latin percussion he came in doing Latin percussion and they let him continue that. I teach me about it. Like, how do I play songo? How do I play salsa? Like, let's, let's talk Roomba. And that didn't seem like it was a space that I could ask that question. So that school, I was there for four years. I got a minor in philosophy. I completed all my general education. I did a ton of music at that school, all of my music history and transferred to Long Beach. Uh, and I was there, I was at Long Beach for five years for under, or four years. I was at Long Beach for four years of undergrad as well. Um, and oh, just, okay. yeah, because as a teacher, you also have to get a teaching credential. So mm. it was essentially two years as a music major and two years doing my teaching credential. Gotcha. Um, so I was in, a, I was in school for a long time, but that's okay. I still have a lot more to learn. <laughs> and when I was at, at Long Beach and I went to Long Beach because, um, I went to, at the time that I was upset at Cal State Fullerton, I knocked on the door of my, you know, director of music education uh, at Fullerton and said, I want to study world music. I want to study Brazilian music and African music. And like, how come I don't get to do that here? And he looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? You should be at Long Beach. And I went, oh, okay. And I went there and I took an audition with the director and I loved it. And he was so cool. And they had all these African drums in the walls. And I was floored um, and immediately went, yeah, this is, this is what I need to do. And so that's, that's when I, I ended up transferring to Long Beach and finishing there. Got it. So not, it sounds like not a ton ends up transferring, or at least did they have you because you you had all this other stuff today, make you retake a bunch of classes at Long Beach or did stuff carry over? Stuff carried over. I was done with all of my non-music stuff when I got Mm -hmm. to Long Beach. So that was cool. And then I had to, you know, retake all of my lessons because when you're a music major, you just take lessons in college the whole time you're there. Um, I had, I placed into a certain level at theory. So that kind of didn't matter. It was just wherever I was at. Um, so they, they took a lot of it. Um, but some of that stuff you couldn't replicate like ensembles, you know, you always have to be in a performing group. You always have to be taking lessons when you're a music major. And I was at Fullerton and I was at Long Beach. So when I was at Long Beach, I was taking like between eight and 10 classes a semester. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, four or five of those were performing groups, but, um, it, yeah, you know, they, they kept a lot, thankfully. And I just had to retake a bunch of music stuff. Did did that does that feel like 
a lot when you say that out loud now, or is it just like, this was the way, like you were so excited to be around all the things you had wanted to be around that you were fine. Like, let's go. I learned a ton at Fullerton. Mm-hmm. both about what I liked and what I didn't like. And and so I don't feel like any of my experiences were wasted at all at Fullerton. And I, you know, when I say it out loud, I had to take all that again. I, that was still valuable experience. It was still studied experience. You know, when I placed into theory, I didn't place at the very, very top, but I didn't place at the very, very bottom either. So that enabled me to take some more advanced music theory classes. And when I got to grad school and beyond, I got to take, you know, the hardest stuff that I wouldn't have been able to do. I also built a really cool network when I was at Cal State Fullerton of educators and performers. Um, my best friend went to Cal State Fullerton and studied viola. So I don't think any of that time was wasted. I definitely learned from so many different styles of educators and musicians that, you know, that's okay. And Long Beach was a ton of work, but so much fun. And I had such incredible, again, like, I just, I feel really lucky. I've had really incredible music educators in front of me so much. Um, and and so I, I think that's probably why I wanted to go into it is because I felt like I wanted to give back, you know, um, and kind of return that and do what I could to make that situation better for anybody that I could. Um, but no, I, I think it's, I think it was well worth it. Um, it was kind of expensive, Sure. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, but you know, Dave Gerhardt and mm-hmm. um Michael Carney uh at, at Long Beach are those guys are just incredible teachers. Yeah. Um and and I learned so much from them about life and about music and percussion. Um and Dave is such a percussion nerd yeah. in the best way. Yeah. Um that I I really kind of honed in and like, you know, connected or was like academically attracted to that because I had never met somebody who was so excited about percussion repertoire and different percussion instruments. And, you know, he and his colleagues would put on percussion recitals all by themselves. And I had never, ever seen anybody that could do that or that even wanted to do that. So when I got to Long Beach, I really felt like I was in the professional world. This is like the real deal, you know? Um, And so that was just exciting, even if I had to take some stuff again. When you finish, because you were getting certified for the for the teaching portion, were you looking at, was an option for you to be a band director? Was that something you were looking to do? Or is it just like you did that and then you you go back to, to uh, get a master's? When I graduated college with my degree and my teaching credential, um, I knew I wanted to go teach a high school band. That was kind of the deal. That was my goal. I was offered a job before I could technically take it. And I I had some directors at Long Beach help me kind of with those hurdles and how to be able to work there, even though I wasn't, you know, credentialed and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I always, I always wanted to be a band director. Um, it's, it's hilarious. I taught that traditional marching program for 10 years and then just completely stopped and walked away and went, yeah, I'm not doing marching anymore. I still have pulse and I still work with the marching arts in that way. Um, but I really would never in a million years have, have guessed that I would be teaching pop music, you know, and I'm in my, I think I'm starting my sixth or seventh year at Huntington now just teaching pop. When I went to grad school to, to kind of pursue a better understanding of teaching film music, 
that was the goal. That was my, you oh. know, kind of my focus. I wanted to learn and be able to teach film music or maybe even interdisciplinary arts, you know, for those schools that don't have a dance program. Like how can we give them an opportunity to, to, um, to be exposed and, and perform other performing arts. When I went to school for that and my area director said, no, 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 you need to focus on pop music. I went, no, I can't do that. I'm not comfortable doing it. Let me throw every barrier up that I possibly can. This is not the thing. And I went and kind of, you know, shared with um, one of the department chairs. Like, I, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm conflicted. I want to do this. He's pushing me to do that. And he told me, he said, look, you've got, you know, you're standing in a room with a bunch of doors. And if, while you're standing in this room, that's probably the door that you want to open this one over here on the left. And this door over here on the right is going to open and you don't know what's through that door. You might be standing waiting for that door on the left to open your whole life. So you darn well better go through the door, the door that opens, you know, regardless of what's on the other side. And I kind of went, okay, yeah, I guess I'll do this pop thing. And here I am, you know, teaching this pop program and I would never, ever, ever trade it for anything. I love my job. I love teaching pop. I love working with the, the musicians and the kids and the, the faculty. Um, and I'm so glad that, um, you know, I was able to kind of set aside, I'm a band director. I want to teach marching band for what's best for the kids. Mm-hmm. Like what, what do these kids need? And, and, and kind of become a teacher who teach, happens to teach music, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I got you. While you were teaching band, I mean, at what point does, do you go, is this actually what I want to do start to happen? Yeah. I remember the moment actually. Okay. How far um, in? Uh, it was when my, my last year at my at nine, nine years, mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> nine years into teaching full-time and I was teaching orchestra and I did not, I really loved the kid, like the students. Yeah. Oh, I adored those students. They were so much fun. I did not like the music. I did not like teaching that music. Um, like and it, I like was, the kind of the, or like early classical era kind of stuff or? Uh, yeah, just, I think orchestra music, just okay. teaching string instruments. Yeah. Um, the personalities of the students and, and the way that I was approaching them, just, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, who I was. And I, I could obviously change that. It was just a very, very distant version of me that was going to, still take a very long time to get to, you know, yeah. and that's okay if that's what I wanted to do, but I just, I wasn't enjoying that. I remember conducting an arrangement of Brahms in mm-hmm. my rehearsal studio at my old high school with my students and just saying like, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Like I, I love the kids. Mm-hmm. I don't resonate with getting them to appreciate this music enough. I need to learn more. I need to figure it out so that I can better appreciate it for them. And they're passionate about it because I am. Because right now, it's not working. Like, what I'm doing is not working. And then, like, no joke, a month later, I got a call to go teach pop full-time. And I went, okay, that's let's try this. And if this goes, then it goes. And if it doesn't, then that's okay. I'll bring in an orchestra director. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, because now I'm now I'm the timeline. I'm I'm I'm, miss, I'm missing something. So when does the master's degree happen? So I went to school uh, for my undergrad, and 
2006 and I mm-hmm. finished in 2009. Okay. And then I went back to school in 2012, 13. And I was at school until like 2018, writing my thesis for my last year and a half, that kind of thing. So around 2018 was, yeah, 2018 was when I got the offer to teach at Huntington. Right when I was done with grad school, mm-hmm. I got the offer to teach at a new high school. Gotcha. Okay. So you were, so all of that is happening while you're a band director or this is mm-hmm. a different thing? Okay. Yeah. I was in grad school taking classes in the evening while I was teaching full-time. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now, okay. Now I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, that's, that's now that helps uh, to understand it. So when you first are going to your grad program, is that because you because you want to, or is that because it, there's a, like a salary benefit, which I know some people like, or there's like sometimes there are programs or states where it's like they actually have to go get a master's because like they need to show that they're still pursuing their own education. I think probably ego. I probably oh, wanted okay. to have a sure. master's. Like if I can, yeah, I yeah, it's pretty dumb, but it was probably because I wanted a master's. I needed to learn more. I knew I needed to learn more. I didn't know mm-hmm. what I was going to learn. I think I wanted the paper, but I didn't realize that I was actually going to become a better educator if I had the paper. And I got way more out of it than I ever thought I would or than I ever anticipated I would. And, you know, actually got to learn. And ha- I would love to go, you know, stop everything and go get a PhD to learn more, mm-hmm. you know, um, not because I want the title. I don't want the title. I would love to just know more about why students achieve in the ways that they do and how to make them, how to help facilitate and help guide them to achieve in a better way that fits them. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, um, you know, recognized that there would be a salary bump mm-hmm. um, and you know, that incentivized it at the time I, I knew that, I could maybe consider teaching college and I knew I needed a master's to do that eventually and a doctorate to do that eventually. Um, I don't have those aspirations to teach college anymore. I really, really genuinely love what I do. Um, And I taught college for, you know, a minute at Cal State LA and Cal State Long Beach. And I've worked as a contract consultant with Los Angeles County Office of Education Working with college students is really hard. Any of you who are listening to this and work with college students, like more power to you, man. Because those guys are, I remember being in college and just rolling my eyes and being ready to get out into the wild. Whoever's in front of me, stop talking and give me a piece of paper so I can do what I already know how to do. And that's how I felt working with college students too. Hmm. So some of them were great. Some of them were just ready to get out of there. Um, And high schoolers, still sometimes care what you have to say. And it's a little bit more, they're still moldable and it's, they're still a little bit more fun to work with. I think for me. Like that. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. My classes coming up soon here. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because you mentioned ego to get it, but it's, it's, but it's a, it's an ego in terms of an ego that's eager to learn is not the same kind of ego. <laughs> like you clearly had a desire to just get better and no more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a good amount of educators shake their finger at me and say, you need to realize what you don't know. <laughs> you need to learn what you don't know real quick. 
it's stuck with me and I cannot tell you how phenomenal the educators at Cal State Long Beach were when I was there. Um, you know, a, a small handful of them have retired and others have taken over. Um, but I was just really lucky. I feel like I was exposed to, you know, some of the best minds that ever went through that program. Um, and I'm very thankful. And because of that, uh, was forced to, you know, stand in a library and learn how to catalog correctly for five hours on a Sunday and, you know, um, write a, a bibliography in 10 different ways correctly and, you know, in three different languages. And, <laughs> you know, I, the network of those educators and the, and the colleagues, I would not trade for anything. And when my students ask me about going to music school, you know, I often tell them it depends on the area that you want to go and pursue. If you're going to play, then you're basically going, I believe, to build a network um, and force you to practice. You know, if if there's some other reason, you know, then yes, go study it. But understand that a lot of what college is, is building your network. All right. I finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. First question, Danielle, an issue in music education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? That's so easy. Um, that uh, music educators think that I'm stealing their students because they want to play pop music more than they want to play jazz band. Music educators don't want to teach pop because they think that it will steal from their their program. Their program will get smaller for it, but then they complain that their numbers are going down. So it's being open. And I was there. I'm fully hypocritical. Um, you mean you were on the jazz band side? Why? I was on the jazz band side that, you know, no, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I'm not doing that. It doesn't make any sense. And then seeing the force through the cheese to realize like, come, come to the students, like come meet them where they're at, you know, give them a sense of belonging, give them what they want and they'll learn music with you. Gotcha. All right. Next question. Take this wherever you want to wherever you want to go being a woman in the music education field as a marching band director it was really hard i had awesome staff members that i hired to work with me um but yeah that was weird um in my wgi experiences i kind of don't care you know i think i was probably treated like less than, or that I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, I just kept growing professionally. Uh, I've been told, my husband has told me, um, yeah, that's they They treated you like less than because you're a woman when they said that to you at my full-time job in my other school, I've never seen things through that lens. I'm not used to looking at things through that lens. And so for me, it's just kind of, uh, reflective, not in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. Where I am now, every facet of what I'm working with now, I don't experience any differences working as a woman. Um, I work with John Mapes at, at Pulse and 100% treats me as an equal, like a sister almost. And in my job, my principal is a woman. Um, my boss is a woman. I, you know, there's, there's so much equity everywhere I work that um, it's, it, there's no issues now. With the colleagues, yeah. I think so, but it might've also been my age and they were a little older and I was a little younger. All right. Well, let's uh, move to some uh, more fun questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? 
Uh, just Halloween costumes. Ooh, yeah. What do they wear? Students dress up in Halloween costumes, uh, like jeans and a blazer and a t-shirt and Converse. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't wear Converse anymore. But that was old, old school. Yeah, we had like a bunch of like ten kids dress up like me, <laughs> and that's what they wore. Are you like this is a this is a a fine looking you guys look great. <laughs> that's exactly what I said. You guys look great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Clothing wise, then, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? The most impractical item of clothing I own. Yeah. Impractical. What does that word mean? Like it's not worth owning. No, it means like it. Maybe it, it hangs in the closet, and you're like, "Oh, I still have that." And then maybe you don't just never wear it. Oh yeah, yeah. My my wool long jacket, my coat that I bought in Chicago like ten years ago that doesn't fit my shoulders anymore because I've had two kids and work out, <laughs> and it's like a four hundred dollar jacket that I don't want to throw away because it's yeah. awesome. Right. And it makes me look like a German spy that I will never Sweet. wear again. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> you should start the imagine. interview with these questions. Like definitely more people will stay listening. If you start the interview. <laughs> uh, do you, do you have a matching hat with it that, that you may have worn? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> it's like a fedora. Nice. But like, I kind of like walk the line of John Mayer looking. So I kind of dish the fedora. That's fair enough. Nice. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? <laughs> oh God, what day? Ah, <laughs> uh, oh man, this is rough. Yeah, I melted a candle at my old house, and then I walked I, away. Like I melted a candle, yeah, like in a in a pot. Oh. Like I I turn, put a candle. It was like messed up or like disshapen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, yeah. I'll just reform it. I'll just melt it oh. and then I'll reform it. Right. So I turned it on low, turned it on mm -hmm. the heat on the stove, like put it in the pot and walked away and went and talked to my husband upstairs. And he's like, something's burning. And I went down and there was a fire that was like a foot tall. And so Gosh. me not having been in scouts or, you know, any of that, like, what did I do? I got a cup of water. Oh boy. And I threw a cup of water on it and it made a wax fire and it looked like backdraft on our ceiling for four seconds. And we all freaked out. It was during COVID. We all freaked out and then the fire dissipated right away. And we all, like, I looked at my husband and he said, you know, you're not supposed to throw water on a wax fire. And I went, oh, good to know. Okay. That's I'm aware of that now. Thank you. Yeah. That's definitely my biggest kitchen. And I, yeah, I, I know how to cook. I, I feel like I cook pretty well. Um, I do not know how to like human sometimes. Oh, sure. You know, so, oh, you're supposed to throw baking soda on a wax fire, not water. Mm. So, yeah. Got it. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, Danielle, what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? It's the movie Moneyball is a great movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love sports. My husband and I watch a lot of sports. Mm. We got sucked into the Formula One net, um, series uh, yeah. on Netflix. And now like we watch the races. Nice. I love, bas I love baseball. I love basketball. 
Um, some of my closest friends are like women's basketball players, um, from college. And so they're really deeply rooted into, um, women's basketball and it's WNBA and it's awesome, um, to kind of like see it through their lens. Um, we watch football exclusively. So all of the sports, my mother-in-law has this saying, she doesn't really go to movies. She's awesome. She's a doctor of psychology or sociology. She says, well, that's three hours. I'll never get back. Yeah. You know, um, and that's how I felt when I saw this movie. Happiness for beginners. Terrible movie. I feel like I've heard of this, but I don't know. Oh, I don't. my gosh. It's on Netflix. It's like one of their top movies right now. It's like oh. their second number two movie. We watched it. Terrible. Terrible movie. Hellbeast. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Hellboy? Hellboy. I hated that movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hellboy. Yeah. I was forced to watch that. And my husband and I were dating at the time. Yeah. And he was trying to impress me, like pick movies that he thought I would like and this and that. Ooh. And he picked Hellboy and wow. we finished the movie and I looked at him and I'm like, your score just went down, man. <laughs> do you want this relationship to continue? Cause you need to do some work. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> Seems like he recovered though. A favorite book. Atomic Habits. Oh, yeah. Atomic Habits is a great book to build consistency and understand how to build good habits and how to get rid of bad habits and what habits are. And yeah, I love that book. And I um, I struggle with books. Part of my job with, with Huntington is to try to do a lot at one time mm-hmm. and make sure all the cogs move. And I also run this nonprofit organization. And I'm also on the board of directors for... Uh, this thing and the board of directors for that thing. And I do way too much. I multitask. And so books are really hard for me. They would be really good for me if I could ground myself and force myself to stop and read them. But I'll read, you know, four pages and then walk away and never pick it up again. So Atomic Habits was one of, was a book that I read from cover to cover immediately. Awesome. I've had a number of other guests who are, who are speak highly of that. Yeah. That book. What you alluded to this so then i have to so you mentioned that you love sports but do you have sports fandoms then like specific yes. teams that you follow or play we have <clears throat> we have familial rivals in my house ah. um we went to my husband and i went to a dodger game like a week or two ago they were playing the reds and my husband is from cincinnati kentucky and so he's like Bengals, reds mm-hmm. i grew up here and so i'm dodgers Rams. Mm-hmm. So we've had some really great rivalries in the house lately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dodgers. Oh my gosh, the, the Bengals Rams Super Bowl. That must have been a that was fun. I wasn't fully committed on the Rams though. I but they came through. I'm not really sure how. I think Bengals just were bad. Um, but yeah, that's been it's been fun. Um, I you know, I think I'm a follower of all sports. I like fantasy football. Uh, we play oh. in three or four leagues, mm. so I tend to just watch football to watch it and not too much too close to the to the teams i'll support the Bengals because you know there's like Bengals cl- clothing all over my laundry that i stare at all the time <clears throat> so i guess i i guess i can like the Bengals a little bit i'm a huge dodger fan mm-hmm. um i'm a big uh sergio perez fan for formula one so mm-hmm. i think yeah basketball no whatever we watch all the uk basketball games though because my oh, husband went to university of kentucky yeah. 
So that's college basketball we're big on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a good friend of mine works with the Clippers. And so we watch Clippers when we can. Got it. Wh- where were you when, uh, well, probably your house when the Dodgers won in 2020. Oh yeah. At my house standing, you know, four feet from my television screaming, trying not to wake up my kids. Absolutely. Nice. It has to be weird that, that it's like that and the Lakers both happened in not, not in LA. Like, <laughs> yes. Yes, it's that is what it is. Sure, I mean it it's was still a, a championship. Win anyway. matter, yeah. yeah, kind of. <laughs> All right, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Japan. My husband gets to go for work all the time, a couple times a year. Um, and I'm so jealous. He's been, you know, half a dozen, a dozen times, and I've never been. We spent a lot of time. Um, early in our marriage traveling. So I've been really lucky to travel to Europe like almost a dozen times. Um, We just got back mid-July from a trip. We were in Berlin and um, in Modena, Italy, Amsterdam. And so we've traveled a lot. I've I've been to Thailand and Australia and um, man, I love those places, but um, I'm, I'm jealous of him that he's, he's been to Japan as much as he has. And I've still not been able to get out there. Mm. He needs to put that, list that as, uh, you know, business expense. To, I to- know. Well, so we've got, I've got a four-year-old and I've got a nine-month-old. And so we're waiting until love the travel. This, little kids love travel. Oh, yeah. I've been no, told that someone who has no kids. I've been right. told that yeah. little kids love travel. My four-year-old is a killer traveler. He has ridden in first class more than I have. <laughs> um, thanks, dad. So... He's great. He loves flying. He loves traveling, but I don't want to do like a vacation tour until uh, both can walk on their own and not ask mm-hmm. to be held. Um, so we've done little vacations. They've gone to Kentucky a few times. We've gone to South Carolina for vacation, you know, San Diego and that kind of stuff. But they got to both walk before I'm taking them to the train on, you know, in Japan. Fair enough. That seems like a good idea. All right. What's something if someone uh, you meet someone and you they say, I like this, you know, something maybe on a pop culture or an obscure level and you immediately are like, I'm good. We're good. What's that for you? Oh, what's the thing? Oh, it's totally Formula One. Oh, OK. <laughs> gotcha. It's totally Formula One. Yeah. Or paddleboarding nice. or gardening. Mm. Yeah. But it's probably Formula One. Yeah. When I find out somebody likes it, it's like a cold. So I also do, um, I also work out in my, in my garage in the mornings and, um, we used to do CrossFit. And so that's like its own kind of cult thing. Oh yeah. And so you sort of have like a nod to people who do, or used to do CrossFit where it's like fight club where you don't talk about fight club, but there's like an added respect. Like I get you, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry for your loss. I'm sorry what you've had to endure, but also let's just go work out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe and then you do a bunch of pull-ups right there, I guess. Right, right, exactly. It's usually push-ups and like, you know, um, a three-mile run. Yeah, Mm. it's pretty dumb. (laughs) All right. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? I've done a handful of gigs for different companies. I did a Macy's um, gig in San Francisco in a hangar. That was pretty ridiculous. Um, I've done a gig for Skechers for their, uh, like their live corporate events. Oh, I got it. Okay. I got it. I did a gig for the Clippers drumline a few years ago where I was wearing 
a tank top and we were doing a performance for a local parade. Um, and it was actually a Hasidic Jew parade, I believe, which is great. Like, cool. They had like a festival. Awesome. But I had a tank top on with my shoulders exposed and they, they came to me and they were like, you can't do it. Oh, you're a woman. No, you really can't do it now. And so they were like, well, we'll just put a t-shirt on her. And they went, her, she can't march. She's a woman. And I went, really? And they went, Oh, I guess it's okay. You can march. That was the one. So I don't know if wow. you want to air that though. That was gnarly. It was weird. Wow. And it was not the, it was not like the organization. It was like one guy, of course. you know, that was being weird. And we were like, wait, don't you notice that there's like two other women in our group? And he went, oh, it's fine. But there was a moment there where they wouldn't, you know, have us perform. It was very strange. So I don't know if you want to air that though. I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good though. That is a good story. All right. Last question, Danielle. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? I went to uh, the street art museum in Amsterdam a few weeks ago. Mm. There are huge like uh, trucking container size art there displayed and lifted and elevated all over the place. And um, there was one piece of art that, you know, and I think the whole, the whole campus, like really just understanding the history of the street artist and um, the development of the street artist, both in Europe, but also in the United States and the differences of that, I think were the biggest, um, the biggest move for me that like, <clears throat> it was a very cyclical concept. Like the, street artists and how they developed and the messaging and the, the, the dialect and the, the, the language, if you will. Um, and the styles that they, that they designed in were branding them and they were trying to find their identities through these different styles. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it was really neat to walk around that museum and see the different artists have multiple paintings and multiple works and identify their, their formulaic styles that were unique to them and how they developed their own brand and their identity through those styles. And so I think, you know, I know that's not like one single piece of art, but that was that oh. museum that um, really helped me understand that as an artist, it is okay to lock into an identity because it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's your brand. It's okay to, to, to have everyone look at this and go, oh, that's Jackson Pollock. Or, of course, look at it. It's incredible. It's Jackson Pollock. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, for artists, like, find that brand, find that identity, and, like, run with it. Wait, is, is it, how big is this? I'm trying, is it just, like, a normal museum size, or is it's this, a like, warehouse. a warehouse? Okay. It's a warehouse. It's a, it's an industrial warehouse hangar, and they have, like, 75 different, works of art that are the size of a, of a semi-trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's incredible. All right. Danielle, thank you. We are done. Thanks. I Pete. really appreciate it. Thank you. I had a great time. I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Well, thank Amanda. Uh, she was the one who connected us. Yeah. Such a pleasure getting to chat with Danielle here. I really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciated, as someone who co-teaches a jazz pop and rock course and teaches our career development for musicians class here, 
the words of wisdom from her experiences. Here's hoping she finds more Formula One fans to chat with. Thanks again, Danielle. This week's rave is the 2023 film A Fire, starring Thomas Schubert, Paula Beer, and Langston Weeble, and written and directed by Christian Petzold. Now in theaters. If you're familiar with the work of Christian Petzold, congratulations! You are an international movie buff. Petzold's most well-known works to American audiences are the films Phoenix and Transit. And this one seems to fit into a niche audience like those similar, more intimate films do. The plot is as follows. A group of folks who either know each other well or not at all spend time at a holiday home by the Baltic Sea in Europe. Some are working there. Some are there for a professional retreat or getaway. And things get more and more tense as professional obligations and deadlines get impacted with relationships developing and an encroaching forest fire. The movie stars Thomas Schubert as Leon, an author frustratingly working on his newest book and being a jackass to everyone there. He's joined by Nadia, played by Paula Beer, who is also staying at the same house as a seasonal worker, who has a deeper background that becomes important later, as well as Felix, played by Langston Weeble, whose father owns the house, and who is more focused on relaxing and fixing up the place than his own professional needs. The movie does a lot of things really well. One, the pace feels authentic and measured, and it is both leisurely and then gets incredibly tense in spots. Two, the struggle to create art is made painfully clear through Leon's antics and actions. And three, the issues with the forest fire become both quote, a thing in the distance to not worry about, unquote, and then a real issue in ways that make sense regarding climate change and even issues of COVID that we've all dealt with recently. This is not a particularly outrageous or over-the-top movie in many ways, but it gets so much right about how adults relate to each other, how professionals struggle to relate to each other, and how folks can just get too into their own stuff to see what's even going on in the outside world. It was very enjoyable and well worth your time. If it's near you, go see a fire. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.